0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. So we're continuing our series in that Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, the, the, the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is Every Story Whispers His Name, and the name they're talking about is Jesus' name. And that was kind of uh, a novel thing maybe for us to talk about for the last year because we were reading the Old Testament, which never really names Jesus by name, uh, but now we have kind of turned the page, and in the last few weeks, we're beginning to tell stories about Jesus himself. Um, and uh, today, we get into like the very start of his public ministry. It's Mark chapter 1, Mark is often considered to be the, probably the first gospel that was written down. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 14, and it's on page 1045 in most of the pew Bibles. Uh, so last week, uh, Noah talked about the temptation of Jesus. And uh, in the Gospels, what happens right after the temptation of Jesus is uh, uh, something like this. So it's Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, which is like a region around there, proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and His brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, Come, follow Me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, they left their nets and followed Him. When He had gone a little farther, He saw James son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Alright, in 490 B.C., the Persian Empire invaded Greece. Uh, Persia had for some time wanted to take control of Greece. uh, And from kind of a historical, geopolitical perspective, it seemed inevitable. The Greeks were way outmatched by the Persians. The Persians had more wealth and more soldiers and more weapons. And especially important in those days, they had one of the most advanced cavalries of horses in the ancient world. And so most Greeks saw kind of the writing on the wall when these just huge fleets of Persian ships approached full of these horses and soldiers. The Greeks knew that it was really just a matter of time before they would have to become essentially slaves of the Persians. But then in one of the great surprises in military history, that didn't happen at all. So the the Greeks lured the Persians to a place that was like really thick with trees and brush, uh, kind of a swampy place, a place that would kind of neutralize the, the Persians' horse advantage. And the Persians took the bait. And so there in the woods near this uh, ancient town called Marathon, the Greeks defeated the invading Persians. And when the battle had ended, you've probably heard some version of this story before, the Greeks sent messengers to run approximately 26.2 miles from the city of Marathon to Athens. To tell the people of Athens that the fighting was over, that they would not be slaves to the Persians, that they were free. The battle had been won. Now, do you know what those messengers were called? And we're called marathoners yet, or extreme athletes. The term comes from a word in our passage today. They were called evangelistes. And the news that they carried was called an evangelion. It's the same word from verse 14, it's translated there good news sometimes it's also translated gospel so these long distance runners were bringers of evangelion now evangelion is not just any good news this is not like good news like i finished my paper on time or like good news i got this great deal on this sweater no in jesus day evangelion was mostly used to describe just two things It was used to describe the coronation of a new king. Like, oh, there's a new king. Uh, Or it was used to describe victory in a battle. So it's not like run-of-the-mill news. Uh, Evangelion was like life-changing news. It's like everything is different news. And this is what I think is really interesting about Evangelion. Evangelion was almost never something that you did, okay? It was something that was done for you. Like, the battle has been won for you. That's the definition of gospel. Uh, Tim Keller is this pastor in New York City. He wrote a book about the gospel of Mark, which we looked at maybe five or six years ago as a church. Uh, And in that book, he points out that most religious systems and even most like secular worldviews don't really offer Evangelion. I think he's right. I think most religions, even most secular worldviews, don't typically tell you, like, this is this amazing thing that has just happened. It changes you. It changes your life. They they don't tell you, like, the victory has been won. Like, you're free now. No. Most religions, most even secular worldviews, tell you not What has been done for you? Mostly they tell you what you must now do. Okay? So you've got to say these prayers. Or you've got to give this money. Or you've got to support this kind of cause. Or you've got to support these kinds of candidates. Like, most religions offer things that you must do. But the heart of the Christian faith, the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the whole Gospel of Mark is an Evangelion. It's Gospel. Like good news, the time has come. Like good news, the Kingdom of God is near. Jesus says there is a new King and a new Kingdom in this world and it is different from the dead-end Kings and the dead-end Kingdoms that you're accustomed to. This, This is the Kingdom of God and it is right Next to you, it is so close, and you did nothing to make it happen. It's evangelion. As a preacher, I try to kind of beat this drum loudly in our worship together. It's it's not up to us. It's it is first what God has done for us. That's the gospel. Sometimes we say uh, it's not good advice. It's good news. And yet, in our passage today, almost immediately there is this wrinkle. Okay? So Jesus says, Good news, the kingdom of God is near. But then he says, Repent. Repent and believe the good news. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Repent? It sounds like advice. It sounds like something I have to do. I have to repent. So what is it? Am I saved by grace alone? Has the victory been totally won? Is Christ king already? Or do I need to do something? Do I need to Repent. And one way that I have suggested to us that we think about this in the past is I asked you to imagine that we're going on vacation, okay? We're driving out west, Arizona. Okay, and You're heading for the Grand Canyon. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Finally, after like 36 hours on Interstate 40, you pull into the parking lot. And you step out of the car and you look out and it just... Takes your breath away. And and you say to the person next to you, you say, Paul, you were right. It's amazing. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Wow, it's so beautiful. And then the person standing next to you turns to you and kind of gives you a funny look. And he says, "Uh, Dave, the, the canyon's this way. And you turn. Oh. Oh. So here's all the things that Jesus has done for us. Uh, He came to this earth. He lived here. He taught here. He healed here. He he flipped the expectations of this world completely upside down. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. He gives us hope and faith and love. He gives us His church even to support us and encourage us in faith. You might say that He's driven us all the way across the country. He he paid for the hotels and the dinner and the gas. He brought you right up to the lip of the canyon, okay? Right up to the lip of like the most beautiful thing you have ever seen in your entire life. And all you need to do is turn around. That's what repent means. Uh, it means turn around. God's kingdom is is near. That's what Jesus says. It's near. You know what that means? Kingdom of God. I know it's kind of a, a strange expression, but basically what it means is God is working. Okay? He, he's up to something. It means the, the canyon of amazing things God is doing. It's right next to you. There is, there is this life of like breathtaking beauty right beside you. It is near. God is working. But if you never turn around... You won't see it. Now, maybe say, Pastor, that's ridiculous. Right? Who, who goes to the Grand Canyon and doesn't know to look at the big hole in the ground? Right? Well, it turns out that turning around is maybe a little harder than you might expect. In our story today, we get two pictures of people finding out that the kingdom of God is near and turning around. So the first is these brothers, Simon and Andrew. This is verse 16. Jesus comes up to them. He says, follow me. And what happens next is so quick, you might miss it. But it says, Jesus says, follow me. And then they get up and follow him, and they leave their nets. Boom, boom, boom. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. Because fishing, it's no doubt, it's like their family business. Right? So probably uh, probably. Is been their family business for hundreds of years, I would guess. It's all they've probably ever done every day of their lives. It's all they know. It's all their dad knew. It's all his dad knew. It's all his dad knew. Jesus comes up. He says, follow me. And then they leave their nets (laughs) and just walk away. Whoa. It's a big deal. And I think what's so interesting about this scene is that Normally, when we think about repenting, we think about like leaving or turning. We think about repenting or leaving or turning from bad stuff. Okay? Like you've got to repent from your selfishness, right? You could imagine somebody saying that, or or you've got to repent from your anger, or you've got to repent from your racism. And so we we like we confess the bad thing. Right? And then we resolve to change, to turn around, maybe we ask God for help, to turn away from the bad thing, to, to turn away from sin. And, and the idea, I think, there is that our sins, these bad things in our lives, whether it's the, the racism or the selfishness or the anger, like these things block our view. Like when you sin and then you just keep on sinning, it makes it harder to see what God is doing. It makes it harder to see, if you will, the canyon. So you've got to turn around. You've got to leave that stuff. You've got to lay it before Jesus. You've got to say, forgive me, help me change. So when we think about repentance, I think that's typically what we think of, right? To see God's kingdom, you've got to give up the bad stuff. And I think that's certainly true. But here's the thing about Simon and Andrew. The Bible never tells us that Simon and Andrew gave up their sin. The Bible only tells us that Simon and Andrew gave up fishing. All right, so they didn't turn their back on like this wild drug addiction or like this mistress they had on the side, they turned their back on their job. Now, I guess it's possible they were fishing in a sinful way. Maybe they, um, maybe they didn't have the proper license. Maybe they exceeded their limit. I don't know. But I doubt it. It's the same way with James and John. This is verse 19. So we read that they leave something to follow Jesus too. In their case, they leave behind their dear old dad, Zebedee. Now, is there something wrong with Zebedee? Is he like a bad guy, a bad father? He's got a funny name, right? But, I mean, that's not really a sin. None of these guys are leaving sins. They're leaving fishing. They're leaving their family. Those are good things. And yet Jesus says, leave those good things behind. Come and follow me. This is kind of the scary moment in the sermon, okay? Because I think most of us come to church and we kind of have this, we're kind of primed, we're kind of expecting that we're going to be thinking about giving up bad stuff, right? You come to church, it's like, yeah, yeah, like I'm I'm trying not to sin so much. That's a pretty typical attitude you come into church. But this is kind of the scary question that I think is lurking underneath Mark chapter one, which is this. What if. Sins are not the only thing that keep us from seeing the kingdom of God. Okay, Like what if sins, what if bad stuff, what if those are not the only things that prevent us from seeing this beautiful life that God intends for us? Maybe we can think about it this way. So a lot of us in this church, I think, uh, live what I think a lot of people would describe as good lives. Okay? we work hard. Uh, we, we try to get ahead. We take care of our families. Maybe we buy a house. We watch some football on the weekends. Okay. Some people call this the American dream. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Uh, it's not a sin to work hard. It's not a sin to take care of your family. It's not a sin to buy a house. It's not even a sin to watch football. But here's the thing. If your house or your football team or even your family are the things that most excite you, if you think those things and that life is as good as it gets, I think Jesus would say, turn around. You're like the guy at the Grand Canyon who can't stop talking about the beautiful visitor center bathroom. It's like, yeah, they're nice bathrooms. It's a nice visitor center. But turn around! There's a three-mile-wide canyon next to you. To really appreciate what God is doing, you have to turn around. And and I think that that absolutely always takes faith. Because you you see, I think for a lot of us... um, We tend to think, you know, my life's really not that bad. Got a pretty good life. Um, I mean, my life would be better if I wasn't a Wolverine football fan, but like, I like my job. I like my family most of the time. Like, what does it even mean to leave those things? Like, literally leave my family? Like, I doubt that's what it means. You know, there are some people in our church who who have left almost everything and almost everyone that they love uh, to follow God's call. Anything about Jenna with Peace Corps a few years ago or Micah, right? We've talked about him a few times today going down to Costa Rica or uh, Liz or Leah with MCC going to Bolivia or Jordan. So These are people who like felt God's call to move like to the other side of the world, like serve like these needy communities very far away from here. And those moves, like, if you talk with those people about those moves, like, those were a big deal. Like, it involved a lot of risk. Uh, It was a little scary. But it's also true that, like, none of those people, like, left behind, like, a husband with their kids. They didn't even really leave jobs. I mean, they, they more or less kind of switched jobs is what happened. So what does this mean for us? Like, what does it mean to repent from your family, or to repent from your job. Let me take a stab at it, if you'll let me. And this is just kind of a personal reflection. All right, so we'll start with work. So I know personally how easy it is for me to like draw a huge amount of my identity and like my sense of self-worth from my work. Like, feeling like I'm competent at my job, I'm good at my job. Like, I'll even, like, I'll, like, put in, like, an extra evening or an early morning. Like, I'll do this extra project or uh, write this report. And a lot of times, like, the expectations, those deadlines, they're really just my own. Like, nobody else really has asked me to do those or do them by this time. But see, I want to, like, impress people. Like, I want people to think not just, like, uh, Sean's our pastor, but, man, he's a good pastor, isn't he? Like, oh, Sean, he's good at his job. I'm sure that I am not the only person in this church who has those feelings about their work. Now, there's no sin in having a job. It's good. Have a job. But what if it's like that? Like, what if you find your value as a human being primarily through that work? What if it's that work that tells you that you are a worthwhile person? Like, I am matter because I'm good at my job or I am matter because I get good grades at school. I think that if that is as good as it gets for us, I think Jesus would say, turn around. Right? Like in the kingdom of God, okay? In this place and this space where Christ is king, our worth is not defined by our work output or our GPA. Our worth is defined by the precious blood of Jesus. We were worth enough that God would die for us, okay? So if you are getting your sense of worth from your work or from your grades, turn around because you are missing the most beautiful thing right next to you. Or how about family? Let's talk about family a minute. Nothing wrong with family in principle. I mean, there's certainly things wrong with our families, but it's a separate sermon. Um, So I can tell you that I know personally how easy it is to say no to lots of opportunities to serve or lots of relationships I might otherwise have uh, because I think that's going to be inconvenient for my family. Especially since we have kids. I'll give you a, a, a concrete example. So one of the things that I have encountered a lot in West Michigan that I don't really think is true in a lot of other places is that in West Michigan, after church, uh, it's family time. But it's not church family time. You know, uh, there's a lot of people in West Michigan, they know their Bibles, uh, and they believe what the Bible says that our church family is even more important than our biological family. So Jesus says that in, in actually very strong terms. And yet, I think in West Michigan, after church, it's not church family time, it's biological family time. It's dinner at grandma's. right? And it's sacred. And I sometimes wonder if we're missing out on like this canyon-sized, beautiful thing that God intends for us which is that God has already provided a family for us, and it is sitting around you right now. And you might not even know this family yet. But you know how the Bible describes this family? It says it's like a human body. It says it's like a human body where each and every person, and you can just take a minute, look around, okay? Each and every person is an essential part of the, of the body whether you're an eye, an ear, a toe, whatever. And not one part of the body, the Bible says, can ever say to another part, I don't need you. The Bible says, in fact, that God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Okay, so just take a look around a minute. Go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll wait. Do we believe that this is true? Can you imagine if it was true that you desperately needed each and every other person in this community? And that they desperately needed you? Can you imagine if it was true that you are incomplete without each other? Now if that were true, but you're spending every Sunday after church at grandma's and not getting to know these people you desperately need, who desperately need you, I suspect Jesus would say, turn around. So I think the trouble is, we want faith in moderation. Uh, We don't want to do so little in our faith that someone might call us a hypocrite. uh, But we also don't want to be like nuts about it. We want to be moderate. But I have to ask you, and I'm asking myself here too, is there anything in our passage today that suggests that what Jesus is really looking for is some good and moderate disciples? Follow me, he says, and they left their job follow me he says and they left their family now i know that i would prefer moderation just saying i'm like i'm sure i'm like all of you right i would like just like the right amount of religion to like just kind of fit into my life as my life is i mean into my plans and i've got my own goals and routines and stuff i want it to fit you might say i just want balance You know that line I mentioned earlier about Jesus and family? I said he says it in strong terms. This is what he says. This is from Luke. He says, "If anyone, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate, doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Okay? Hate your family. <laughs> Not very moderate. Now, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that Jesus doesn't want us to hate people. I should say that. I'm sure that he's trying to make a point here. But I think Jesus has to say provocative things like that because he knows how hard it is to get us to turn around. He knows how attached we are to what we just already have in front of us. right? Like when the view you've already got is pretty good, Like Why turn? Why take the risk, for instance, to to cut back at work and, and possibly disappoint your boss, maybe even lose your job? Why take the risk of incurring Aunt Millie's wrath for skipping grandmas once a month? Like, why take that chance when the view you've got seems perfectly adequate? Right? So you can have your job and your career and your plans and your family and your house you can have like just exactly the right amount of Jesus not too much not too little and maybe the view is like not amazing it's not terrible but this morning I think we have to ask ourselves what if okay what if the life of following Jesus like really following Jesus even recklessly completely, even strangely. Like, what if it really is that much better? Like, that much deeper? That much richer? What if we think we've got as good a view as it gets, but we haven't even left the visitor center yet? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. Turn around and follow. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would uh, instruct us, uh, teach us, convict us. We're slow learners, all of us. um, And what exactly this means? Are there there things that we're holding on to? Maybe, I mean, certainly bad things, okay. Like we get that. We, We could definitely use conviction there. Um, But are there even good things? Um, Things that no one's maybe ever going to say is sinful, that they'd say, oh, sure, sure, yeah, that's a fine excuse. But maybe we sense you calling us to do something radical in that department and take maybe a really big risk. Um, If that is what you want us to do, make it really clear. Uh, Give us other voices around us to, to encourage us in that so we're not, like, alone in that discernment. And Lord, I pray that you would make us into this body that you really intend us to be. We pray it all in Jesus' name alone. Amen. All right, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit, and we're going to sing in response.